I do sound nasally. It's just a sinus respiratory nasal thing. It is not the spicy bat flip. It always surprises me when you see people on Zooms wearing their masks. I can put my mask on now so the listeners don't get it. (laughs) But it's not contagious. David Cunliffe remains about as popular in the Labour caucus as a pussycat at Gareth Morgan's house. Look, this is a la-la budget. When my eyebrow goes up, it's a joke. Police still arrest criminals in New Zealand. We've tried cannabis prohibition for the past 40 years. The fact is, that was a boring, useless speech. Sip it, sweetie, I'm getting there. Mr. Speaker, they say a week is a long time in politics. Hello and welcome back to the Iron Duke podcast, your weekly catch-up of all things policy and politics, with our interesting bits, anything that fits, and our peaks and our pits. I'm senior consultant Byron Terrace, and I'm joined today by Madison Burgess-Smith. Hello Byron, we are back again this week, giving you a great run-through of stuff happening in the electoral reform space, the impending twindemic Auckland Futures Now, as well as a bit of an update on Ukraine. Take it away, Byron. What's your peak of the week? My peak of the week is a little conference called Auckland's Future Now, which ran in Auckland on the 24th of May. This conference is about what a post-COVID future for Auckland looks like, a thriving city, a thriving region that brings together business, it brings together the public sector, and it brings together local government. It's fueled this year by a really interesting report by the former Prime Minister's Chief Science Advisor, Sir Peter Gluckman, called Reimagining Tamaki Makoto. This report focused on nine focus areas. I won't go through each of them because they're all really sensible, things like a sustainable city, a natural park city, etc., 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 but also talking about how we bring back vibrancy to the city right across yes. the region. It was a fantastic day of inspiring speakers, including our boss, Phil O'Reilly, who was challenged on stage, which is always good to see for us who work for him, <laughs> and have a bit of a debate about what business should be doing right now today. Another one of the panels that I thought was quite pertinent to New Zealand and Auckland was the sustainability and regenerative economy piece. I love the concept of a regenerative economy and how we build that in. In particular, I encourage you listeners to go and check out Trow Group, They're a social enterprise based around deconstruction. Right. So demolition, right? So usually you just take the concrete, crush it up a little bit and chuck it in a hole. But these guys at Trow figured out a way to use construction materials in new and innovative ways. And I think that their business model is something to be looked at for the future. So I had a really good day at Auckland's Future Now and I encourage people to check out the follow-up where they can. So yeah, that was my pick of the week. Quite positive. Yeah, it was actually. What's yours? Um, Look, mine's the Electoral Law Reform Working Group Committee sub parliamentary collection of individuals as commissioned by Chris Farfoy. I love a working group. Now the headliner of what they're going to explore, which coincidentally happened to coincide with Goldrose's bill on voting age being pulled from the biscuit tin, is the potential to lower the voting age to 16. Mm. This working group has also, you know, within its terms of reference, they're going to look at including people who are from overseas being able to vote when they're here in New Zealand, which is actually something a lot of other countries do already. They're also going to look at campaign financing. I think every political party got called before the serious fraud investigation Yeah, they're all bad. They're all bad. I reckon they're just going to get, here, look, here's your box of Cadbury chocolates, sell it among the caucus room, whatever you raise, Mm. that's that's your campaign spend. Did you guys sell Cadbury chocolates? We sold like no brand. Like home brand chocolate. I don't even know what the brand was when we when we sold it. No, it's always Cadbury in those little purple boxes. No, we had just home brand. 
They're also going to look at parliamentary terms, the possibility of extending ours out to four years, what that would mean for democracy in New Zealand. And look, it's always good to explore these things from time to time and have like a proper review of New Zealand's electoral system. Is it working? Who is it working for? One that they'll probably have to consider is, do we have to raise the number of MPs? We've had 120 MPs for just as long as I can remember, and our population's growing. We know that we're fixed to the number that we must have in the South Island. Are we still getting adequate representation? So one of the silly rules that they'll be getting rid of is the ban on campaigning on election day, so that you're not allowed to have a hoarding up. You can't send a spicy tweet saying, vote for me, on election day. And look, there'll still be parameters around that, you know. For example, you're probably not going to have your local MP handing out flyers at the front of a polling booth, but... Yeah, exactly. Starting to think about some of those more arbitrary rules. For example, the extending of terms to four years, we know is something that has cross-party support already. So I think this group will come out with a lot of recommendations, some of which people will love, some of which people will hate. But I think this group will have some concrete recommendations that we will see adopted. On the four-year term, it's quite a nuanced discussion. Increasing it by a year technically increases the power of a government because they have more time to do what they want. And so you have to balance that with something else. You've got to offset that increase in power. Which is probably opposition leadership of select committees, right? That's a classic example. That's a really good response to increasing the power of government. What's your pit of the week? The war has moved into a different phase, a more traditional battle of attrition phase akin to trench warfare and kind of fighting over single villages. In the eastern region where the predominant fighting is happening at the moment, the Donbass, unfortunately the Ukrainians are on the back foot. The Russians are concentrating their efforts. The valent siege of Mariupol has been broken, is, is over. Thousands of civilians have perished. The city's been destroyed. It was a city of half a million people. It was a beautiful city on the coast. And so the Ukrainians are slowly giving territory in the east. Now, in Ukraine itself, Russian forces have attacked more than 40 towns in the eastern Donetsk and Luhansk regions. Officials say at least five civilians have been killed. Two key cities, Severodonetsk and Lyshansk, have come under intense bombardment. And there's heavy fighting for a crossroads connecting Ukrainian territory. You've also got a situation where Sweden and Finland want to join NATO. However, it's not as simple. You need a unanimous decision inside NATO, and Turkey has fired up its objections, primarily saying that Sweden supported the Kurds, and that is a big no-no at for one time. Now there has to be negotiations with Turkey, Sweden, Finland on their support for the Turks, and the Americans are saying we'll facilitate that. Quite a complex soup that's happening. Mm. We've got to be careful about just calling for peace and deciding that, you know what, Russia, you can have this territory that you've just invaded this country for. It didn't work in 2014 for Ukraine. It's not going to work in 2022. And unfortunately, the only way that we can really say there's a definitive victory here is if Ukraine can push Russia back to their borders using military force and then come to the negotiating table then. That is very hard for Kiwis to understand because usually we're peace at all costs. But right now, this is the future of Europe and it's being decided on the battlefields of eastern Ukraine. My pit of the week. Aside from your nasal passage. Well, it's actually quite closely connected to that. I don't know about those of you out there in Listenerville, but I feel like at the moment, everyone's got COVID. And my anecdotal evidence is not actually supported by any real evidence that shows a massive uptick in case numbers. But what we do know is that the Omicron wave is going to last us 20 weeks, and we're probably at around week 12 or 13. What it means is like this is going to be the prolonged period of disruption in our labour force. But there are clearly a lot of people out there who aren't declaring that they have COVID because what we do know is that our hospitalisation rates are increasing. 
Hospitalisation of COVID patients is up 75% in Auckland over the last month. And something that a lot of the epidemiologists have been saying is that we are about to experience either a twindemic or a tridemic in that COVID did not hit us early enough. So now it's going to hit us with the flu at the same time. And it's likely also to hit us at the same time as other respiratory illnesses. This comes at a time when nurses and other healthcare workers are going on large strikes. We know our healthcare system is absolutely decimated. I just wanted to give a moment to put that on the table. Hey, it's I'm okay. A bit worried. It's going to get reformed. The health system gets reformed. On 1 July, Health New Zealand becomes a thing and everything health gets solved. Magic. Well, it doesn't. Look at how the RMA is going. What? Look at Three Waters. So you can't just announce a reform and then say this entity exists? You can't. But I'm concerned about the health and well-being of New Zealanders. I'm concerned about the health and well-being of our healthcare workforce Mm. as well. Mm -hmm. I'm actually disappointed when we look back at the budget. Why do we not just pay these people more? Yeah, that's very true. Or, you know... Why don't we just encourage more people to move here, more nurses to support the people? Why aren't we more doctors? I, I totally agree with that. It's not looking good out there, is it? To continue with the doom and gloom, as a real post-budget recap, we have the man with the numbers, the guy who can explain it all, principal economist Brad Olson. We are joined now by Brad Olson, Principal Economist and Director of Infometrics Partners, one of Wellington and New Zealand's leading economic advisory firms. Brad, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's exciting to be back. Let's jump straight into it. I want to get a bit more of your idea of of how the budget played out. Well, I think this budget was quite different. Every other budget, there's been sort of something key that the government has led with and has really dominated, and then there's been sort of second and then third tier Mm. announcements. This time, a bit more of a scattergun approach. Yes, there was the cost of living stuff that was announced, but it was fairly small and very, very limited. Also overshadowed, depending on who you are, by the very big announcements in the likes of the health sector, also some big announcements in education. So there was a lot of stuff going on that I think did make it quite confusing. And realistically, it was also the numbers that Treasury were putting out that dominated headlines. People were worried about just how high inflation is going, just how little uh, impact we seem to be having on the housing market, and just how much spending the government is putting out. So it was quite a big budget all things around, but very scattergun as well. What I also thought was a bit different to usual is that we didn't really get any of those insights that we usually get beforehand. There's always a couple of announcements so that we know what's coming. Why do you think they did that? Well, I think there were probably quite a lot of decisions that still had to be made relatively late in the piece. Certainly that cost of living payment wasn't on the radar. It probably should have been a lot earlier than it was, but government looking at that quite late and also completely overriding the advice it was getting from its own agencies, IRD saying they didn't want to do it, Treasury saying that IRD shouldn't do it, and Minister saying it was IRD's job. So quite a lot, I think, happening late in the piece. The two major announcements we did see pre-budget, one on law and order, also very knee-jerk in a sense around the ram raids that were happening, and also a very technical change really in terms of the debt track and the government's new revenue targets and expectations around a surplus rule but all of that really good for the nerds in Wellington but Mm. for everyone else probably looking at it and going oh there was a budget coming Uh, I had no idea. I guess my next question is what does this budget mean for squeezed middle New Zealand voters? Well, $27 a week for three months, but let's be real, that's uh, probably not going to do a huge amount. Now, in fairness to the government, they were between a bit of a rock and a hard place. They know that inflation is high, but they can't do too much more than what they're currently doing without probably stoking inflation even higher. But $27 a week per person for only those over 18 earning under $70,000 
simple perhaps to exercise, but realistically, by our estimates, the average Kiwi household is spending 70 to 100 bucks more a week on just the essentials. $27, the cost of a, a block of cheese and a cup of coffee just won't cut it. And more importantly for me, you're going to have the next few months with additional fuel support because they're continuing the cuts. Then you've got this cost of living payment for August through to October. And then what? cold turkey apparently from the government when it comes to the cost of living, although Treasury now expects that inflation remains above 3% all the way out to 2025 so there's quite a disconnect there between some very short term support from government but a very long term issue with inflation What do you think October looks like for Kiwis? Well I think realistically there's a big political question there, is the government really that mean and politically naive that they all of a sudden say actually nope there's no more coming through I think they've got to probably look at further support but also in that sort of targeted response, you can't just keep throwing money at the problem though, in fact that's one of the worries that for all of that support that's going to households there's a lot of other cash that still is streaming into the economy to keep things up. What was fascinating is that Treasury made it very clear that their view was that as much as we talk about the global inflation right here at home in New Zealand is driving things and more importantly will drive inflation over the next few years. That's a big implicit signal to government that if they continue to keep pouring fuel on the fire, inflation won't get any better anytime soon. And I mean there's also the part that you know we saw $6 billion in additional spending, next budget looks like an additional $2 billion, and the one after it close to half a billion dollars again. What does that mean for our ongoing fiscal outlook? Well there's a huge amount of additional spending that the government has baked into its forecast going forward at a time when really you've got to be a bit worried I think about trying to make the budget stack up, it does become a bit more of a house of cards. That's from two points of view, one, are you going to continue to have people that are able to sort of make that same money in their jobs and and continue to pay taxes at a time when There are worries about a recession. More importantly, this big inflation issue is starting to hit government as well. Now, you mentioned the additional spending coming forward for the government next year. Treasury estimates the the government will need $3.5 billion just for meeting those cost pressures for government. They've got $2.5 billion to play with. There is a missing billion there that government has to find. That's a huge challenge for them going forward. Well, look, the other place where there's a missing couple of billion is in and around the health spending. And we saw, you know, all those DHBs come out with their deficits that look like $21.9 billion and then they got $11 billion. Do you think they'll come back with their hands out next budget? I mean, look, health is a never-ending bucket of money that you could continue to throw stuff into. My greater worry is that we're looking to try and establish a world-class health system, and that's important. We know how critically important it is, but we haven't seen, in my mind, the investment that we need to into some of our actual physical hospital buildings. There were announcements, of course, for Whangarei, Nelson and Hillmorton. But we've seen in recent times two of Wellington's hospitals not able to operate in the same way. They're going to need cash. Probably most critically though, and this is absolute basics, you can have the best structure of a healthcare system ever, but if you haven't got the nurses, the doctors, the allied health professionals to staff it, we are no better off. And there was no money, no announcements from government over a willingness to pay nurses more, get on with that pay parity deal and similar. That has been sitting there for yonks. Well, they they're really out need striking to get going. at the moment, aren't they? It, it, it's insane. I mean, I, I think realistically for a government that wants to talk about sort of making these issues better, we know that nurses are looking to move to Australia because mm. they can't get the money.
One thing that stood out for me, Brad, in terms of wasteful spending was the huge amount being spent on mergers. The 347 for the RNZ, TVNZ. You've got a lot of money in there for ongoing reforms and restructuring in the RMA. What are your takes on that, on, on that sort of behaviour? I think it comes down to priorities. Now, look, in normal times, sure, governments are always looking to do reforms and similar, but there is a huge amount of work on that the government wants to get through. But realistically, you and I both know that there just isn't the resource available in the economy and that either the government has to make some tough calls on what it wants to get done or the market will make those decisions for it. And that's a big shift and a big challenge for the government. Now last year when I asked the Finance Minister about the capacity of the economy, the capacity of government to actually deliver on all of this, he was very forthright. Things were going to happen come hell or high water. This time round at the budget he was a bit more circumspect, sort of noting that the government would have to calibrate its work programme around what resources are available. Now as critical as all of these different government projects might be, I would much rather have seen the government say, look, still a priority, but it's not happening right now. Maybe we'll do it in two years' time when there is people and money and and, and resources. But right now, these are the things that we absolutely have to knock off this year because otherwise the wheels will fall off. We didn't see that level of prioritisation this time round. I wanted to touch briefly on what I think is that real contradictory policy at the moment. So at the same time you've got inflation running as high as it is, you're also putting in a stimulus package. At the same time you're saying, you know, climate change is our nuclear-free moment, we're cutting excise fuel tax, you know? Where do you think that we, we reach that crossroads? Well, I think at the moment none of the policies that are coming out are, are particularly rational because you're right, they cut across each other. And I think it also speaks to a real need to lay down exactly what those priorities are. Now, we heard from the government that their priorities are around climate change and, and health in this budget. That's fine, but again, why would you extend the fuel excise tax? Mm. Why wouldn't you maybe do uh, a much bigger uh, cut to the likes of public transport if you have some goals, some principles, some strategies in mind. Or but commit to it forever. That, well, that's the other option. And, and they absolutely could have. And, and look, I mean, everyone is, is worried about, you know, the various ability to deliver on larger public transport and similar. But the, the real reality here is that people are looking for some direction from the government. And I don't think they're fully getting it at the moment because there is so much still that is yet to be developed. I mean, you look at the emissions reductions plan. Mm. That was a plan of action, apparently, that was more strategy than anything else. So many parts of that were looking at doing something in XYZ area without any further details. I mean, you look at the likes of something that is a bit more concrete, the scrappage scheme. Again, still no idea of what exactly that looks like, who's going to get it, what sort of dollars are available. That sort of detail means that everyone is still waiting three years on and just the quality of the advice, the actual ability to move from strategy to action isn't there. And it makes you wonder what they've been doing with all this time. You had the Climate Change Commission's advice there, right there, ready to pick up, copy and paste and go again. But looking at that ERP, the amount of money in there for consultancy, for plans, for strategies, surely that must get middle New Zealand angry. I think it is hugely frustrating, but again, it just makes it so difficult for people to plan their lives, for businesses to figure out where things are going next, because everyone is just waiting. We have pressed pause, we're sort of in in purgatory, Um, and I mean, a a similar sort of thing happens when it comes to our freight and logistics and infrastructure. I mean, we saw the government announce more money for a pilot, a study, I think, another one, the 25th, 26th study, into a new port around Auckland, this time at Monaco. Some reports have said it's great, (laughs) others have said it's absolutely daft. My concern is that the 
government's currently asking people for their views on issues around freight, thinking about a hub-and-spoke model. There isn't a port strategy, but government has now apparently directed where the next port is going. It's so cut for the horse, it's not funny. Mm. Look, Brad, my last question for you is an in around what you know the Ipsos polling monitor says is the biggest issue for New Zealanders, and that is housing. What do you think this budget had to give there? Not a lot. The latest Treasury forecast from the budget showed that there is going to be a slight decline in house prices, but at their lowest point in mid-2023, house prices in New Zealand will still be 32% higher than pre-pandemic levels. At the same time, wages will only be up 18%, inflation up 17%. So realistically, you've got people who are saving for a house that have gone no further over the last few years. House prices have gone at double the rate of everything else. And with interest rates going higher, you've got a lot of people out there who just can't afford to even think about housing still. So the fact that there's absolutely no advancement on housing still after all these years really does, I think, make it very clear that there is not a willingness to throw the kitchen sink at it. Well, if you did listen to our podcast last week, listeners, you'll know that that's where we had our robust debate and around all the housing spending that was committed to transitional housing, which was, again, a concern. Brad, thank you so much. You are always going to be the economist who can unpack the numbers and make it easy for everyone to understand, and we really appreciate your time. As is tradition on the Iron Duke podcast, we're now going to run you through a quick hot or not. I'm going to throw you a couple of topics from the last seven days, and you're going to tell me if you think they're hot or if you think they're not. The first one up, the Australian election. Hot. Loves a bit of democracy. Lowering the voting age to 16. Hot. Real hot. Red hot. Really? I'm curious. Flesh that out a little bit for me. Well, young people make decisions too, man. Give them the vote. The OCR rising by another 50 basis points today. Hot, but not. Yeah, it's the wrong type of hot. And lastly, that striking healthcare workforce. Not. Cool. Thank you. Neato. Well, listeners, thanks for tuning in for another week on the Iron Duke podcast. Stay healthy, stay wealthy, but until then, we'll see see you next week. week.